podcast starts. Hello, everyone. If this is your first time listening to our show, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. And thanks for sticking with us. This is a show that talks about horror. Horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we think of as adjacent to horror. And sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about just because that's who we are. This week, in a change to the scheduled item, I promised you a review of Halloween 6, and that's going to be next week. We've been rather busy. Apologies for the lower sound quality than usual. Because we're kind of pressed for time, we're doing this whole thing on Zoom this week. um, Because we've had to spend the time that we would usually spend putting the podcast together, doing interviews. Um, And that's those are what you're going to hear. And I'm actually joined this week by the wonderful Ian Winston. Say hello, sir. Hello. I'm just dying of, a, of some sort of plague. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, I, I've recently found that germs can be transmitted over podcasts. So <laughs> I, no, I, they can I'm be transmitted. Your five-year-old has just gone back to school. So. Oh, dear, oh, dear. That's Everyone, incredible. Everyone's ill. Unavoidable. But not, um, not so... And listeners, in case you don't know, I'm Dan, otherwise known as TV Velasquez, and I'm over here in Greater Manchester. Ian's in Cheshire, and the reason we've changed plans is that Ian's been very busy recently um, doing interviews and research for to do with the upcoming Grimfest uh, Horror Film Festival, which is usually held in Manchester, but this year will be a digital festival, much as Fright Fest was. And Ian, you were kind enough to let me jump in on some of your interviews. Yeah, um, which has actually been really fun. I'm now addicted to having a wingman. Um, or oh, wow. Because it's actually, these Zoom, these Zoom, Zoom interviews are kind of nerve-wracking more than, more than, more than meeting people in person. I'm so, I've been doing it for 20 odd years, interviewing people in the clubs right. pubs or whatever, but doing it over Zoom is just, it's, it's a new environment. Well, nice. I have to say, it was very strange the other week when we were doing one of the early ones, when I had Red Dwarf playing on my laptop, and then I minimized it and found myself looking at Lance Henriksen, who joined <laughs> the Zoom call early. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That's something I've learned is to be bang on time so you don't have awkward chit chat with, uh, yeah. with, uh, with uh, as, I, as I had with an interview today. Also, I had somebody who came in an hour early from a different one because I hadn't put a password up. Um, and they were like, they were like no, you're, you're not from that film. Why are you here? <laughs> so then they were saying hello to people from other films that they'd never met before as well. So it was all... I, right. uh, I probably should put passwords up on my Zoom. But anyway, um, so speaking Grim, of Zoom Grim, calls, Grim, this is this is this is the strange new world of doing everything from your room. Um, uh, but, uh, but Grimfest is a festival I always rock up for because Simeon and Rachel I've known since well since the since the first Grimfest I think. Not before. That's Simeon Halligan, the festival director, mm-hmm. um, who I don't know very well. But I do know Steve. Well, I don't really know Simeon at all. Um, some of my friends do, but I do know Steve Bolshaw, the other festival programmer, mm-hmm. um, and, and they kind of take care of the lineup between them. But we'll talk about the general festival for a bit, and then you're going to hear detailed interviews with uh, the people behind three of the movies, 
and this is the first of, I think, three episodes we're going to do over the next few weeks leading up to the festival, which is on the dates of the 7th to the 11th of October and is going to comprise a hell of a lot of movies, um, which you've seen most of them by now, haven't you? I think, apart from the short film programme, which I haven't seen any of, I've seen, I think, looking at my spreadsheet, I think I've seen every movie now. Wow. Well, so, now I have, I have to say as well that we're not allowed to review the films ahead of time. No, so, so I'm not allowed to go for this that. guy. Ugh, that's awful and that's great. Um, but occasionally so, it does become apparent in interviewing the filmmakers whether or not we like their work. Well, basically, uh, I think it's a truism that when you're interviewing a, a talented person, you don't want them to know if you don't like their work, but there's yeah. no, but you tend to let them know if you do. Yeah, I don't Because think... it only seems fair. Yeah. So uh, so I've seen Ropes, which is, it's just amazing how many... Uh, just always at festivals, but this is really is international. It's uh, Ropes, which is Spanish, which is about a man, uh, a man in a wheelchair who is trapped in a house, and then there's a rabid dog. Then there's Death Ranch, which is filmed in Tennessee, but made by a young, a young British director called Charlie Steeds, who I interviewed. He's a lovely chap, but not who you'd expect to make a slasher movie about the Ku Klux Klan. Um, um, well, they're not just the Klan, they're um, the 70s black exploitation with the Klan as the monsters, and also they're not just the normal evil Klan, they're cannibal Klansmen as well. Right. So it's a crazy, crazy film um, with with some disgusting scenes, um, which is very good. Um, I'm not allowed to say <laughs> And there's the documentary The Horror Crowd with Ruben Plyer. Um, then we've got the Revenge Ride, which has Scrimfest's friend, um, friend of the festival, Pollyanna McIntosh in it, which is a biker movie. Um, has a lot of violence in it. It's not very horror. Um, but then Grimfest isn't just a horror festival. It's, uh, it's, it's more interesting films, films that may be a bit more niche. Um, and then we've got the special, which talking of niche, you'll have to watch that to find out what happens in that that is a disgusting film um, well, the title really doesn't give anything away there no no but it's uh yeah when we come to review that we will uh we'll maybe tell people what the special refers to sure. then we've got unearth um which we're going to hear tonight the interview with john c lyons and dorota Suarez. we were talking earlier that we sometimes realize we can't pronounce people's names and i still can't pronounce john c lyons as wife and co-director Dorota Schwiers. I still can't say her damn name. But um, right. the film is, is billed as a fracking horror comedy. But as you'll hear later on, it's it's not really a horror movie in many normal ways. Sorry, is that On Earth we're talking about now? On Earth, yeah. Which uh, I believe will be the yeah. second, second interview we're running tonight. Um, then there's I Am yes. Ren, which I've covered already... Um, in Sci-Fi Bulletin, I interviewed Marta Krull. Um, it's a Polish movie, so so yeah, was, so another country, and that's a sort of sci-fi android. Is she an android? Is she a Stepford wife? Is she actually is she actually a woman who's having a mental breakdown who thinks she's an android? That's kind of the deal with that movie. Then we've got Twelve Hour Shift, which we've just seen, Dan and I. 
Um, and yes, and will be the first film that we'll be talking about today yeah, in detail. We've, we've literally just got, off, we've just got off the Zoom call from Bria Grant, the writer-director and star of things like Dexter, amongst uh, many other TV credits. She's She's been in many things. Then we've got an ideal host, which is an Australian, very low-budget splatter gore comedy, sort of in the tradition of early Peter Jackson. Um, then we've got H.P. Lovecraft's The Deep Ones, which is an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Deep Ones. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but not set in the 1920s, set in the modern day, um, which is, a, which is a, gonna be a cult favorite, I think. Um, which I've also interviewed the cast and crew of that. Um, then we've got The Oak Room, which will be our third interview tonight, which I've just watched, um, which was a really, I'm not allowed to say whether it was good or bad, but um, as I say in the interview, I really do quite rave about this one. I, I really like this film a lot. Um, there's a lot of films, aren't there? Then there's They Reach, which is also, I was about to say something, uh, in favour of it is also a very good film, um, but we'll talk about it more when we come to it. But it's a sort of it's got a sort of Stranger Things vibe, set in the set in the late seventies, if I remember rightly, um, and a lovely it's a lovely introduction to a sort to a new a new uh, a new lead who I think is going to be I think she could have quite a career ahead of her. Um, right. Then we've got Uberu, which is a remake of the director's father. It's a remake of We Can You Kill a Child, um, which was a oh. Spanish movie. This is a Spanish movie, but he's relocated it for the remake to the Amazon rainforest and involves actors from the indigenous population of the- of Who the Can Kill a Child, I think it's called. Is the it, original. Could I You Kill a Child? I thought it's Who Can Kill a Child. Who Can Kill a Child. It probably I is. remember seeing it on Martin Gatiss's History of European Horror. Horror yeah. Europa. Yeah, I think it's had a but few I've never seen the actual film. Obviously, it's translated from the Spanish. But yeah, you might be right that it's best known as Who Can Kill a Child or Who Could Kill a Child. Uh, then we've got Fried Barry, which is absolutely mad, um, from South Africa, which we both interviewed. I can attest to the fact that it is absolutely mad. Yeah, and I, I interviewed them the other day. Um, so that will be one for the future. Then there's Unhealer, which we both interviewed everybody for, which was uh, starring Amazing Lance. And, and yes, I think the entire cast. Yeah. Down to the to the uh, runners and the best boy, I think, yeah. were involved in that Zoom call. Yeah. Then there's 10 Minutes to Midnight, which I've just realised I have not seen. So there is one I haven't seen. Um, and then there's Triggered, which is a South African made, but everyone's pretending to be American, which is about a bunch of people who wake up with bombs strapped to their chests and they've all got to kill each other. It's basically Fortnite, but real. The Stella was talking time. about that film last week on the yeah. podcast because she saw it at Fright Fest and yeah. I didn't see it, but she quite liked it. Yeah, it's quite fun. It, it's, uh, you know, for uh, lots of teens being driven mad and trying to blow each other up or uh, well, stab each other to death um, before they blow up. It's, uh, it's quite fun. And then there is It Cuts Deep, which I have seen. 
I think. So on. Yes. Yes. Did you like it? Well, not that we're allowed to say, but... Uh... We're not allowed to say, are we? But it's, <laughs> um, it's basically... Um, how could I describe it? It's, it's sort of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation meets The Shining. And it's oh, interesting oh. to see a, a, a Christmas movie that kind of looks like something like The Holiday in the way it's photographed and the location, but it's actually kind of got a slasher movie inside a comedy in it. I'm glad you could remember having seen that film because I literally went blank, which isn't a review, honestly. <laughs> Literally had forgotten we'd done that interview and we'd uh, and we'd uh, seen that film, but um, actually the interview was was good fun. So that's a sort of rundown of the main attractions of Grimfest. Uh, as ever, a really really great and interesting and varied dip into the weirder side of cinema from all over the world. Um, so. Uh, You've seen quite a few of these as well, haven't you? Um, but should we go straight now into our mo our interview with Greer Grant? We will. Just before we do, I'll just yeah. let the listeners know that there's, I'll put a link to the Grimfest website in the show notes. And individual, the way the festival works is going to be like Fright Fest, in that you can buy a, a pass for the whole festival, or you can uh, buy individual film tickets. I think. Um, but the individual tickets aren't on sale yet, only the full passes and the concession passes. Um, so you have to keep keep an eye on the website for the next few weeks to watch the individual tickets become available if you just want to catch particular films or if you're strapped for cash. Um, but yeah, having said that, yeah, let's segue into our first interview. So we're talking to Bria Grant who is the writer and director of 12-Hour Shift, a movie whose plot I will just sum up, or whose concept I'll just sum up, because I'm not sure we did it very coherently in the interview. So um, essentially, it's uh, an extremely dark comedy set in 1999 on a night shift in a hospital in Arkansas. And there's a nurse working in this hospital who is... Um, essentially involved in some kind of organ harvesting um, scheme uh, uh, I, where, where people are killed and their, their organs are, are harvested and, and sold on and money is exchanged. Um, and this collides with a, a whole load of unexpected events at the hospital. Um, and I don't want to give anything else away, but it was quite a fun watch yeah um, we're not allowed to say whether we liked it or not no it's no we're not we'll have to just leave can, the listener see, to see, judge see, from the interview judge from the interview whether we liked it or not but it's yeah. it stars wonderful angela bettis as mandy um who and she's she was uh, for those of you that saw the remake of carrie on tv in 2002 um she was that but she also she was carrie in the remake I think so. All right. Okay. It was so 2002. Did, yeah, I, that's the kind of in-between TV movie version because we covered the Chloe Grace Moretz remake on this podcast a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. But I haven't seen the TV one. Yeah, Carrie, Carrie Etta White. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can imagine that working because I was, I've never seen Angela Bettis in anything before. 
But I was looking at the, she, uh, she strikes me as, she really reminded me of um, Emma Stone. Hmm. So, and I can imagine, you know, Emma Stone a couple of years ago making a very good Carrie White. Yeah, so yeah. That's probably what Angela Bettis was like 20 years ago, wasn't it? So, yeah, yeah, 18 years ago, yeah. And also for people that like their cult movies, she was in The Woman, um, as I mentioned in the interview as well. She was in The Woman alongside Pollyanna McIntosh of De Grateful Dead, uh, Grateful Dead, Grateful <laughs> Dead, Walking Dead fame, who uh, Grimfest had last year yeah. as a guest. I was lucky enough to have some quite a lot of drinks with her and Johnny Vegas <laughs> <laughs> at the party. Um, that sounds like a party, indeed. She was, uh, it was Pollyanna McIntosh doing shots and Johnny Vegas buying me pints of Guinness. Um, but yeah, but um, yeah, because she directed the sequel to the woman, which was called Darling, which was a, which is a sort of hit of last year's Grimfest. But um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah and also, also worth saying that that the that twelve hour shift also also stars David Arquette, who horror horror heads will know from all the screams, well, three of the screams and possibly Scream Five. <laughs> and also, it's just uh, one of those movies that his presence, it, like we talk about in the interview, it's set in the 90s, and you can't think of a more 90s movie star than David Arquette, really. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember considering whether to rent a movie in about 99 called Never, Never Been Kissed. Oh, yeah. On the grounds that... Yeah, I don't. I don't think it necessarily looked great, but it had David Arquette and Drew Barrymore in it, and I yeah. loved them both from the Scream movies. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I did watch it. Maybe that's the next phase. Just like Stranger Things has been, has been hiring people who were associated with the eighties. Um, mm. Maybe this is uh, the next phase: is hiring people that were associated with the nineties. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, there was a movie at um, Fright Fest, uh, There's No Such Thing as Vampires, where people were talking about it as a 90s throwback as well. Oh, wow. And it, and it had people in the blood. Sorry? Just to make us feel old. Well, yeah, so... Yeah, but anyway, anyway, let's, uh, let's, we go over some of this ground in the, in the interview. Yeah, so, so let's go meet Bria Grant. Let's go to uh, Run VT as they say, okay. and uh, we shall listen to, well, the people at home shall listen to the interview now. I'm very dizzy. I mean, I need to talk to a doctor right away. I just got here, and I'm about to work a double. Someone expired in the ICU. The coroner just left. I have another idea. Well, look at you taking initiative. I like my initiative too. This is good to go. You lost thousands of dollars worth of organs. If I don't bring him a kidney, I'm dead. I can still get you a kidney. You kept all the organs inside. How dead are you? Perfect. You pour bleach down that man's throat. Yeah. What the hell did you do? Cops are coming here. 
I'm gonna tell him who did this. You killed an innocent man for no reason. I'm just gonna have to solve this problem myself. I'm not leaving till you give me a kidney. Why would you bring this cousin of yours into this if you knew she would kill people? I sometimes have too much faith in humanity. That is what I like about you. So here we have the honor of being joined by writer and director Bria Grant, whose movie 12 Hour Shift is fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Bria. Oh, thank you for watching the movie. Yeah, no, I, oh. I watched it this morning and loved it. And I think you watched it. Yeah, I think I can say it was my pleasure as well. Oh, good. Yeah, no, it was, it was um, absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely loved it. And you, um, you wrote it and directed it, I understand. Um, Correct. So, uh, no, this is a criticism in any way, but why Arkansas and why 1999? <laughs> wow. I'm just going to call people in Arkansas and let them know how you feel. Um, <laughs> it was originally set in East Texas, which is where I grew up. I grew up uh -huh. in a really in a small town in East Texas called Marshall. And um, it, it all took place there. And I also, I'm a child of the 90s. I was a teenager in the 90s. So it felt like the most natural fit for me to set this movie in a time and place that I really knew very, very well. Um, but then as we got closer to production and HCT, who are my producers, when they came on, um, they two of them are actually from Arkansas and one is from the town we shot in. And one of their dads was driving around and he said, you know, I think this hospital has a floor that they're not using and they're about to redo. And he went in and they all talked to the people at the hospital and the people <laughs> at the hospital said, sure, you can shoot a movie here for a month. So the movie got reset in Arkansas because Arkansas was so friendly to us. They helped us out with tax incentives and we did shoot in Arkansas. And um, I am forever loyal to Arkansas because of what they did for us. It was, it was an amazing experience shooting there actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy old movie um, for the, for the, for the, uh, for the uh, people at home sort of revolving around a, uh, a, uh, well, drug, drug dependent nurse. Um, who, who's an organ harvester. Who's an organ harvester, which is just in the news in the real world over here. It's a um, great one line pitch. Yeah. 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 Yeah, opioid dependent nurse who harvests organs, but it's also a lot of fun in a very dark and grim and scabby and disgusting way, um, <laughs> which uh, which I also loved. Um, so where did where did the actual idea come from? How, what 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 part of your mind did that spring from? <laughs> I mean, a few things. I mean, I uh, have always been interested in urban legends, and there was this one in the 90s about waking up with your kidney missing and having to go to the hospital because someone, an organ harvester, sold it on the black market. And so this was kind of my continuation of that version of, um, of urban legend, of, of that urban legend. And um, there was also a, a nurse in the 90s in Texas who was um, uh, one of these nurses who was killing people. And so that kind of always stuck with me to kind of combine these two uh, stories. I mean, generally when you see these sort of like, um, uh, what do they call them? These like 
they're not Black Widow. The, the, the nurses who kill people, it ends up being like uh, mercy killings, you know, or something like yeah. that. But I wanted to take it to a place where it was more <laughs> a financial gain for her. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I got to set it in a place in time, which I think is just full of fun people to play with and just rich with characters and all sorts of events that are happening at that time. I know there's a lot of stuff going on right now because COVID is essentially some of the biggest, one of the biggest things that have ha has happened in our lifetimes. Mm. Um, at the time, I was a teenager in, in 1999 and all anyone could talk about was Y2K. And yeah, it was yeah. such a big thing for me. I thought the world was going to end at Y2K. I was convinced right when the clock <laughs> turned at midnight in Texas, I don't know why that there instead of somewhere else, uh, we were all going to, you know, end up in the dark ages or something. And that that has really stuck with me as being such a big event in my life that ended up being nothing, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, got, a, it's got a lovely sort of grungy feel to it as well, which I guess is, uh, that's also from the from the era um just which just totally. maybe, sorry yeah oh no, no no i'm sorry this is the problem with, <laughs> yeah, with no, no i'm just gonna say because it just um obviously it's not a big part of it but just um just i'd never heard that amanda palmer version of daniel johnston at the end which is just oh that's wonderful yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i never heard that version i'm gonna go and seek it out because i love daniel johnston uh, <laughs> I wish you will, would. I'm, so I'm from Austin. I love Daniel Johnson. Or I lived in Austin. I'm not from there. Um, and Amanda was nice enough to do that cover for us. I think you can find it on her Patreon. What's very sad is you cannot find it in the version of the movie that's going to be released. Oh, wow. So oh. well, that's another reason to go watch the movie. So I didn't realize. So she, she recorded this for the movie. Yeah, I reached out to her and asked her to record it for the movie. Oh, wow. So the version that the listeners or the audience will see at the festivals, will they get to hear that version of the song? Mm -hmm. They will, they will. So um, for people who don't know, Daniel Johnston is this amazing um, uh, musician from Texas, or he lived in Texas at least. I think he is also from there, but he lived in Austin mm -hmm. for a long time and um, just wrote these really creative, interesting songs, but he was kind of an outsider artist. And... Um, while we were in post for the movie, I had reached out to his manager, um, which he's schizophrenic, so he's he's hard to get in touch with. And um, his manager agreed and said yes to us, and I got in touch with his publishing, and we were all going through with it. And then he passed away while I was doing the going through the paperwork, so I could never get his version of it. So I got Amanda Palmer to cover the song. But um, we only had festival rights. And this is uh, a warning to all the filmmakers is that uh, we were unable to get it for the actual release. Oh, wow. Well, that is definitely a reason to capture it at the festival because I can't say too much about it because it's a spoiler, but the way that that song is used at the end of the film is yeah. so affecting. Yeah, Devil, Devil Town, isn't it? Devil Town. Yeah, just yeah. Daniel Johnston, I could go on about him forever. And... Uh, yeah. Just that, that amazing documentary for just as a little sidebar for you to put at the bottom of the podcast. Just the, um, is it the late great Daniel Johnston, the documentary? The one I've seen is, isn't it called The Devil and Daniel Johnston? Or oh something? yeah, it is The Devil. I think it's the album of covers I've got that's um, uh, maybe called that. But yeah, I've been into him since Kurt Cobain wore his t-shirt and <laughs> in uh, the mid nineties. Right. I am a lot older than everybody else here. 
Um, well, speaking I, of which, before we move on there, just yeah. sticking with the kind of 90s setting, I really appreciated that, Bria, because um, actually in 1999, 2000, I was working 12-hour night shifts in uh, nursing homes, so not in hospitals. Um, I, I, one of my other jobs is that I, I do a lot of hospital work now, but in those days I was in nursing homes. And I had to keep reminding myself that this film was a period film because now that I'm approaching middle age, my adult brain just thinks it's still 1999. And therefore <laughs> I just looked at it. You know, I didn't, I wasn't going, why don't people have mobile phones? You know, it took kind of half the movie for me to go, oh yeah, 1999. So. Well, the weird thing is fashion is sort of back. And so it's this weird setting a movie in the 90s means you're buying clothes that are relevant today. So it it's not hard to dress people for the most part. That was something something we found. The hardest part was actually finding electronics from that era. Um, you'll notice that the computers are all dated and um, the hospital equipment is actually um, from that era as well. Hospital equipment is much more modern um, now. But yeah, for the most part, it looks not terribly dissimilar unless you uh, are paying close attention. We, um, the, the, one of the major problems we had was getting cars out of there that, that were from past 99. We had a lot of trouble with that. that. There were many days where we'd shoot something and be like, ah, crap, and like have to move a car in the background. What's, right. the, what's the red car that features um, a lot? I'm oh, wow. Well, I, bet, should, isn't it? I should know this. Uh, I could text my producer. All I know is that we were at a, <laughs> place where I got um, a, a, this guy who restores cars in Arkansas. We were we were there. We actually shot there. It's where we shot the scene with Mick Foley. And I was walking around and I was like, can we get that car for uh, Regina's car? <laughs> and my producer Jordan will ask anybody anything. And he approached him. We ended up getting that car, uh, Mikey's car, the truck that um, Angela Bettis' character has. So all of the cars were actually from this one place. And I wish I knew, but I don't know anything about cars. No, I, don't <laughs> I think it was a Chevrolet Corvette because Corvette. it's like the nearest car you can get to a Pontiac Trans Am without being a Trans Am is how I remember it from when I was a child. It's like the not Knight Rider car. Right, so that's a nice straightaway. You just spoke a foreign language to me. I mean, <laughs> a 12 year old son, because of Grand Theft, Grand Theft Auto, knows all his cars. So he would just be able to go, oh, I've driven one of those. <laughs> in the computer game that's but, um, a that's a totally different cars are just magic to me and <laughs> if yeah. it breaks and i just uh, i don't know so it, it totally suits uh it totally suits uh, mandy's cousin by marriage and the the crazy psychopath um and you've got you've got an amazing amazing cast there i mean obviously angela bettis sort of holds the whole thing because she's just barely a scene it, when she's not in it's it. a stunning performance from angela Mm. And I think a really fascinating lead character because the movie kind of, it's not quite a horror film, but I think you feel like she's the kind of horror film lead where she's quite unsympathetic and, and she might be due to a comeuppance later in the narrative. Um, not giving away the ending of the film, but I think that she's, she does become more sympathetic because you start to realise... Um, well, but basically the, the truth of her, the background to her life and where she's come from and what her day-to-day -day life is when it's not, you know, in the hospital, which is a particularly um, 
sharp revelation. And I just thought she was magnetic on screen. And, you know, there's a lot of burden on her to carry the movie as well. You kind yeah. of feel that, um, you know, that 12-hour shift tiredness, again, from my own experience, it's kind of written on her face. And, um, but the performance is very, very alive and very engaging. Um, yeah. Did, did, you know, did you know Angela personally before, or how did she come into the project? No, I've, um, I've always been a fan of hers. I have a running list of actors that I would like to work with. <laughs> um, and she's always been at the top um, as someone that I just thought was really great back from May, but also from um, Girl Interrupted. Like she, she's just mm -hmm. been in a lot of really yeah. cool movies over the years. And I always thought she had just really interesting range, even within that movie May, she goes from mm -hmm. one character to a different character by the end of the film in a really amazing mm -hmm. way. And I knew someone who knew her. Um, Amber Benson is a mutual friend of ours. Mm. And I reached out to Amber because she had been in Drones, uh, which is a movie Amber co-directed. Um, and I was like, do you think you could get the script to Angela Bettis? Um, because my producers and I talked a long time about who Mandy would be. And, you know, originally in the, in the script, she was supposed to be early 20s or, or something like that. And it just felt like she wasn't going to have enough gravitas. She was sort of this like anchor in the middle of this hurricane that was happening mm -hmm. throughout the night where you had these wacky characters coming in and out and making her life difficult. And we needed someone who was just very grounded and very steady. And meeting Angela, she actually is like that. She is a very mm -hmm. um, calm, calming presence about her. Um, and she is is like cool and mature and I felt like was just gonna do an amazing job and then I essentially begged her to be in the movie and she said yes. <laughs> yeah, she's, um, to, to people that follow cult movies, have you seen The Woman? Um, you know what's so weird? It's one of the, it's a it's a it's a, um, um, a gap in my Lucky McGee history because I feel like I've seen everything else he's done except for The Woman. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the the one that's it's based on um, Jack Ketchum's novel, and we had Pollyanna McIntosh, who's directed Darling, the sequel. We had her with Grimfest last year, um, and yes, yeah, so I just it just there's something about like you say that stillness and, and, and slight creepiness. It's, I mean, obviously. It's got such a it's got such a left field energy. This movie, I love it. I mean, we've not even talked about the the sort of dance routines and the and the well, you know the sort of weird musical bit, which totally works. Totally works. It's, it's the whole film. The whole thing feels like a sort of. I just like, like, like to say, like it's run on run on sleep deprivation. It's like a, a pee on to <laughs> sleep deprivation. Well, if I may observe, you know, a major character in the film, apart from the human cast of characters, is the music, the wonderful mm -hmm. score, which is, um, I only know from reading the credits, but your score is by Matt Glass, who's also your DP, your director of photography, is that right? Oh, wow. also, also my producer, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry, I missed a credit. Um, <laughs> honestly. Not paying enough attention, too many 12-hour shifts, not enough caffeine, but um, uh, it's just a stunning musical accompaniment uh, and and absolutely bonkers. I don't know how to kind of uh, describe it otherwise to sell it to people, but... you um, grungy jazz. It's kind of, there's something, there's, there's something pounding about the drums. 
yeah um, it just yeah it adds to the stress of her situation it's uh it's uh yeah the, the whole thing knits together really well as a as a as a as a sort of I keep using the word dirty because it does make me kind of want to shower in a, I say that in a positive <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah, which I think is a tribute to the music, but also, also Matt Glass, uh, in some ways, the lighting is that we yeah. never went for lighting that was beautiful. We went for lighting that was, uh, you know, made your skin not look great. It is, it is hospital lighting. We wanted it to feel like yeah. it was a hospital. But it to speak to the music, um, just a plug, we, it is coming out, uh, the album is coming out and it'll be on vinyl with Burning Witches Records. Oh, uh, yeah. We decided to release the whole soundtrack because everyone loves it so much, uh, which is a credit to, to Matt, obviously. Um, mm. From the very beginning, we, we kept, you know, when you're editing a movie, you're putting in temp score and I used some of Matt's work to temp score it but none of it totally felt right. And we went back and forth so much about the music, trying to figure out what was gonna fit. And what we ended on landing on, landing on, which I think was really great, was Matt had this idea that each character would sort of have their own music coming in. And everything for Mandy always felt too dark. When you met her character, she's alone, she's smoking, she's like kind of a bitch. And if it was dark music, it felt, like we were had a really strong opinion about disliking her. And so instead he did this amazing thing where it's just drums at the beginning. For the first whole part of the movie, it's actually, there's no tones within the movie. It's just percussion. And I think that really lends itself to uh, the viewer's interpretation of what how you feel about her. Because there's nothing to tell you, like, this is how you feel. Instead, it's just sort of an introduction to like, hey, this movie is about to fucking drive. Like we're about to move and it is these drums that are gonna push it and get ready because this is going to be a ride. We don't care about your opinions right now, just go with it. And I think that it ended up doing exactly, exactly that. And then just one more thing, cause I just do love the music in it, is um, Chloe Farnworth's character, Regina is this sort of psychopathic character and we had so much music under her and we couldn't figure out what it was. And finally at one point, Matt was like, what if we had over her character, every time you see her, exactly what she would be hearing in her head, which is sort of an operatic score to the beauty of the life she is creating. <laughs> she sees everything as perfection, even though we're seeing her as a chaos maker. And I was like, let's try this. And I feel like it just was like, <laughs> like it was perfect. Yeah, yeah they worked beautifully. Yeah, that character is a sort of nice little way of, the religions are sort of part of as a backdrop to this movie as well. Um, in a, you know, what, what would you, what without, yeah, I, I, I kind of think I know what part religion plays. But how would you say religion, religion, what part it plays in the movie? Well, it's interesting. There is no South in America. There is no Middle America mm. without religion. These are like mm -hmm. these. They're intertwined. Like growing up where I grew up, it was who's your family and what church do you go to? That it was just, it was part of who you are, whether or not you believed in it, whether or not, I mean, you didn't have a choice. You believed in it and you went to church every Sunday. And mm -hmm. I also went to church on Wednesday nights and I went to church on Sunday nights. Like I just went to a lot of church uh, <laughs> growing up. And so for me, it's kind of part of the fabric of that small town universe. Um, 
I personally am not religious anymore, um, but I think it just plays such an important part to how I view that world mm. and how a lot of those people feel about uh, about <laughs> the way the world works. Yeah, yeah. No, I love the fact that the most psychopathic person in it, arguably, is uh, she, she seems to be uh, annoyed that they're teaching evolution. <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning. <laughs> I'm glad you so, caught that, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that's, a little, that's a nod to my high school years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, the uh, the hypocrisy, well, I don't know. People who claim to be Christians not being very Christian is uh, certainly very relevant right now. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, yeah. But there are also very sympathetic characters, or at least... Yeah, yeah. Blameless characters in the movie who are presented as sincerely christian as well so oh yeah yeah no no it's, it's yeah, not it's not, yeah it's not uh we want people to think it's a big anti-christian political thing because it's not um but yeah no, especially all the characters like if i asked all of the characters what their beliefs were i think with the exception of mandy they would all say they were christian Mm-hmm. And I think Andy would probably say she was Christian also, or say she was religious, but maybe doesn't attend a church. Like mm-hmm. it just, that town in the nineties, I just think that's the way people were. It was just this blanket group, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. And it, it makes for, it makes for some great scenes because uh, they're discussing their drug deals and nefarious organ harvesting, but in the chapel, chapel of rest, not chapel of rest, but the chapel in the, yeah. uh, in the hospital. <laughs> So it yeah. just makes for more incongruity. But it's uh, we, we haven't even mentioned David Arquette, um, star of many, many things. But uh, if, we look, if we're looking at the horror world, then obviously Scream 1, 2, and 3. Um, I thought, how, how, five. But is he? Yes, apparently. Oh, yeah, that's the new one. I was going to say, yeah, with, um, with Neve. Uh, yeah, Neve's coming back as Sydney. And all yes, that. Yeah. Uh, we keep talking about that on our podcast. Sorry, Bray. Yeah, um, yeah. Yep. But um, yeah, <laughs> again, I noticed that um, David, uh, as well as having a great cameo in the movie, that we probably shouldn't say too much about the nature of it because it's so much fun. Um, but it, he's also got a producer credit. I wondered which came first. A producer. He and his wife, Christina, came on as producers early in the project and then. It was sort of just a question of what he would be doing as far as acting went. And I thought that was a fun role that was sort of unconnected. Um, I mean, not to give too much away, but he plays a character that you see and you know could potentially be bad news for our main characters. Um, and I needed someone that people would immediately go like, oh, and clock him and remember him throughout the whole movie. And of course, anybody most people watching this movie are going to go, oh, that's David Arquette. And, and they will remember that David Arquette is somewhere in this hospital, possibly waiting to cause harm to these female protagonists. Great. He's fantastic. It's a wonderful role for him. There's loads of great kind of unexpected moments. Again, it contributes to the, the whole kind of left field feel that Ian was talking about. Um, and, and with the music as well, there's just a really good sense of, like in a real hospital on a real night shift, there's a, a complete a random collision of people and kind of styles and tones and everybody's got their individual stories going on and, and they all collide around the nursing station. Um, you know, and it, it it has that kind of vibrancy to it of 
lots of different worlds colliding. Yeah, it's, it's funny as well because it kind of did, now, now it's just sort of come to me that the 90s setting has made me think of the movies that came out in the 90s, so like Go and things like that, which were sort of ensemble pieces of craziness or, you know, lots of, lots of, lots of different storylines all colliding in over one night kind of thing. Um, so it's, uh, it really, it really, it, yeah, it really, really is, uh, it's one of those movies where you go, well, could it be set now? How would it be any different if it was set now? And then the more you think about it, actually it is the 1990s is, is, you know, it totally earns, totally earns its setting. Yeah, because the problem with like, I mean, in some ways I think this is like a heist movie or like some subgenre of a heist movie, which the 90s had a lot of, because it was always like, we're trying to achieve a thing and there are things that go wrong along the way and that's like the the whole evening. And- Everything after Pulp Fiction, there were a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think the, the thing now is that we have cell phones, which just, mm -hmm. we Google something, you know, like it's just so much easier where like a lot of the problems with this, um, if I had cell phones in this movie, I actually don't think it would work because they could easily, you know, be like, I'm here, don't kill anybody yet. Yeah. <laughs> and Even Regina could use a smartphone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's, um, so in your, is this your first time, it's not your first time directing, obviously, but it's, yeah, is this your first time directing gory scenes, violence of this sort? Some um, full on scenes. <laughs> trying to think if it's my first time or I mean not really I've done a few shorts um, my first feature was not that gory um, it was much more of like a road trip apocalyptic road trip but not that much gore best happens. friends forever is that correct yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah I guess this is one of my first times getting to do that um, I mean it's a low budget feature so we did not have a special effects artist or anything on on set so i it was a quick quick learning experience for me to figure <laughs> all this stuff out um since then i've done got to do some stuff on television that's more like this fight and action and gore and stuff like that but mm. yeah no no it's um yeah you, it's, it's uh if it is low budget then it really uh you've uh, you've managed to put every dollar on screen so uh it's uh yes and points, although it's not strictly a horror film, really, although you're in horror festivals, you have avoided the, the low-budget horror movie pitfall of the overnight hospital with nobody in it, which has happened too often. Um, <laughs> you know, even, even at night, hospitals tend to be quite bustling. Um, That's good. I, I will credit my, uh, again, my producer, Jordan, um, and, and David, actually, to an extent, because when... You're shooting these small towns people find out that you're shooting and then they say well can i come to set and my producer and david arquette and other people would go you can come but you have to be in the background so <laughs> those are just mostly random people who stopped by and were like you got to stay for two hours we're gonna need you um or they were my producer tara's family <laughs> oh, right. okay. family and friends on this one. Oh, brilliant inspired move on the producers part um yeah. that should go down in the rule book for low budget film producers yeah. <laughs> let people know <laughs> yeah. so, so you've um have you got any more directing uh, do you mention you directed tv um 
which is East Siders and, and Pandora, which Pandora is just starting to break in the UK at the moment because it's been okay. so on Sky Atlantic over here. So you've, you've directed a couple of those episodes, have you? Yeah, I just got back from directing. Um, we just, they're almost finished with the second season. I went back and directed a few of them for the second season. Most of our actors are um, from the UK uh, on that show because we shoot in Bulgaria, which has um, been really lovely to get to work during COVID <laughs> and go somewhere that's not the States where we really can't go out, shouldn't go outside really. Oh, well, so you've been, um, you've, you've been actually on a set during, during this lockdown. Yeah, I was in Bulgaria. Um, I got back about two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Oh, I love Bulgaria as well. But yeah, oh, there's a lot of stuff filmed over there, isn't there? They've got yeah, they yeah, a big sort of studio system. Yeah, they were they they have a couple of different places, and the people are so nice, and they have the infrastructure to do it. The crew is really really like spot on. So, so yeah, doing doing that. Hopefully, to do doing more. It's such a weird time right now. Yeah, <laughs> never no, no. Up. And you're where, where are you in the states right now, LA? Yeah, LA. Yeah, so don't go out. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, I, at least the sky isn't orange anymore. It's now just like a dark gray. Yeah, oh, geez. Yeah, I was forgetting all about that aspect as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the, the forests are on fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course they are. <laughs> it's 2020. Welcome to 2020. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Yeah. yeah. Well, the asteroid missed. So, you know, look on the bright side. Didn't hit us. and it was a close flyby. It missed. <laughs> uh, so you know we'll all be fine. Yeah. And it, we'll end. The, we'll end the year on a high, I'm sure. Um, just, uh, without getting too political. But um, anyway. <laughs> I hope. We'll see. Yeah. So just getting back to the movie to, to wind it up. Then, um, what are the next plans for the film after festivals? It actually comes out in the States and Canada, I think, uh, October 2nd. So it's coming sooner here and then it will be released in Europe um, and elsewhere in the world, I believe early next year, but I'm not totally sure about that. Um, and then we're playing a few more festivals. We're playing such as, we're playing Telluride Horror Show. We're playing um, here in the States a couple more. Charlotte Film Festival, uh, Film Quest. A lot of the ones that have gone online in the latter part of the year, we're, we're trying to, to hit them. Even if we have already premiered in the States, there's still some festivals we're doing here because at this point, it's kind of like, ah, we may as well just like try to get people to see it. <laughs> yeah. And the more festivals you do, the more people will hear that song. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Even without the song, it's definitely one we're going to be recommending. And uh, oh, good. Thank don't be mad at Grim Fest because that was a sort of a review. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a review embargo. But um, we saw it at Fright Fest, Ian. We saw oh, it at yes. Fright Fest. That's all right then. Yes. So fine. Definitely not busting any embargoes. But yeah, we'll be reviewing it um, when we're allowed to properly as well. But um, yeah, but a fantastic little movie. Uh, one of the highlights of the festival, I would Thank say, you. and the festival's got some real highlights in it. <laughs> this is a yeah, this is a this is a great little movie, and we'll hope to see you in the real world at some future festival, at some point. <laughs> 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 Hopefully, we'll all be able to leave our houses soon. Yeah, yeah, 
Hopefully I'll get to make another movie at some point and it will get to play all these fests again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, most definitely. So that was our chat with Bria Grant, writer, director of 12 Hour Shift. The second movie that we're going to talk in depth about today without reviewing it, of course, uh, is called On Earth, which is, to be honest, a movie I have not seen and I was not involved in the interview, Ian. You did it yourself. All I know about On Earth is that it's about fracking and yeah. that it stars the legend, uh, the horror movie legend, Adrian or Adrienne Barbeau. So if Howard was here, he'd be exploding because The Fog is his favourite horror movie. Yeah, yeah. And she's uh, she is great in it as well. She plays the matriarch. Um, again, oh, fantastic. Whether we like it or not. But she has a lot more to do than just sit there being withering about her son-in-law. Um, there's lots of body horror later on. Um, but as I say in the interview, it's... Uh, it's uh, it's described as a fracking horror movie, but actually I think that's a sort of trick. That's not someone just swearing. No, it's no. It's a fracking it's, horror movie. It's a fracking horror movie. It's uh, and the tagline doesn't really suit the movie, so I think it's. So what uh, is the tagline? The tagline is a fracking horror movie. All oh, right, okay. And uh, and that makes you sound like it might be a sort of splatter gore fun thing, and actually, yeah. Not at all. It's a very. It's quite a serious movie, a very very slow burn, um, which which has led to some bad reviews. Which obviously we're not going to talk about reviews. Um, but I sort of addressed this with them in the interview. Did they think they brought the horror in too late? Because um, there's there's expectations. Your audience expectations are always part of your creative decisions, and I think their general attitude in this is is fine admirable because they just went we didn't make this for people with a low IQ <laughs> so right. that's their attitude but um, no, fair enough. yeah but um, but yeah but, but also there, there were great people over in Pennsylvania which is where the movie is set as right. well. um, and the movie looks amazing uh, we touch upon that as well okay so who did you actually speak to in the interview the the two directors who are also husband and wife um, so John, edit point, <laughs> edit point as I get the sheet back up. Um, so yes, yeah, so I interviewed the two directors, John C. Lyons and and his wife, whose name I still can't, I was explaining before, I still can't say, Dorota Schwiez. But they both, they both live in, uh, they both live in Pennsylvania, which is where the movie is set. Um, and uh, it started off as a Kickstarter, which is also something I uh, I talk about in the film. So their proof of concept was funded tens of thousands of dollars raised by Kickstarter. Right. It's, uh, pretty inspirational. Yeah. Um, and now they have a movie, which is going all around the world and has just been picked up. As Fantastic. That I also yeah. talk about. So uh, I guess without further ado... We'll uh, go and listen to what I said. Yeah, let's spin on. All right, I'll be back later. Now, for now, it's just Ian and the people behind On Earth. So this is Ian Winterton, and I am zooming all the way to from Chester all the way over to Pennsylvania uh, for John C. Lyons and uh, director 
and Dorietta Swayze, whose name I'm probably saying completely wrong. Dorota Swayze. 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 My apologies. Um, for a great little horror movie, although it's many other things, uh, called Unearth, which is a fracking horror movie, according to the tagline. So, congratulations, guys. I've just watched the movie. Um, looking around on the internet, I sort of see that you had a Kickstarter, very impressive-looking Kickstarter, and was that for was that for a proof-of-concept piece? That's not what, what, what I've just seen. Have I just seen a different movie to watch the <laughs> Kickstarter cash? Or did the Kickstarter uh, well, cash in- go into the movie? <laughs> Yeah, initially, uh, and thanks for having us on, Ian. Um, initially, the project started off much smaller scale, um, and the Kickstarter, which was successful, um, Kickstarter um, uh, kind of promoted the it as uh, one of their projects that they love, as did IndieWire, um, and the project kind of grew um, after we saw that people not just in the States, but uh, across the world, uh, seemed very ready and interested in a a fracking horror film, as as you said. Um, And so it it just kept growing. Mark Lucas and Alison McAtee came on board. Uh, We used the funds from the Kickstarter to film a proof of concept. Uh, And then we took that proof of concept um, to attract investors, uh, which took... Uh, more time and then eventually to the version of the film um, that you've seen now with Adrian Barbo and PJ Marshall and uh, everyone else. Yeah. And I, I see it's just being picked up by real suspects for is yeah. that international distribution, international distribution. Yeah. Which we're very happy about real suspects. Uh, you know, they do um, uh, art house elevated genre films Um challenging material and uh we we feel it's a good fit and so do they so we're excited for that new partnership yeah so i was going to say what what's what's it, it seems to be a very personal film for you um john did, did you both grow up in pennsylvania or or just john just, just John. Just <laughs> John. <laughs> yeah, I I grew up um yeah in Pennsylvania in in the forest fields and farms uh of Pennsylvania. So yes, it's a very personal story. Um you know the rivers and lakes in Pennsylvania um had some of the cleanest water around uh but it is one of the most deregulated states in the United States. Uh, so it's very pro industry. And um, unfortunately, there's a lot of pollution, can, contamination, illness due to those. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was kind of the basis for the film. Yeah. And like you said, um, it's not just in the States, though. I mean, fracking in particular, but spoiling of the earth is uh, obviously taking place everywhere but um the uh when when did you decide to uh to make it to bring in the horror element was that always present or was it is it uh one thing i've seen people who are listening to lots of these podcasts will be hearing me say the same thing but a lot of these genre movies they they use the genre to smuggle in serious stuff so Mm -hmm. 
And did the horror element sort of come into the project? Uh, from the very beginning, um, I in January of 2013, uh, I approached some of my trusted uh, genre hounds, uh, like Mark Kosabucky, who um, is a special effects artist, and Dave Bowe's staff. I, I had some visual, you know, and we... I won't say what they are because they're spoilers, but I had, I'm sure you can think of Ian with what they, what the scenes were, but I had some visual ideas uh, in mind that I bounced off of them. And when I saw their reaction and their excitement, um, you know, to, to see uh, some of these things, um, it kind of clued me in that I was on the, on the right track. So, but it was always, um, you know, to pay respect and homage to working class families who go through these very real horrific uh, situations, um, but to heighten that, of course, through genre. Um, mm -hmm. And, the, you know, the genre works so well with uh, social commentary. Um, so, yeah, they, they were always interlinked, but we always knew we wanted to make a deeper film um, you know, for people to appreciate character and story um, and just looking for jump scares and um, popcorn yeah. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really absorbing movie. I've, like, you, your cast as well are, are, are pretty marvellous. Um, so, so did you, I see, it was, is it Erie, Pennsylvania or Erie? That you grew up in, Erie, yeah, yeah, Erie, and um, and Alison McCatty, is she someone you've known? Unless the internet is letting me down, which of course it doesn't. Is she is she not from Erie, Pennsylvania as well? No, no, you're you're right on. Actually, yeah. <laughs> Alison, Mark, and um, Rachel all originally were from um, this this area as well, where we made the film. I didn't know them. I mean, I knew. Uh, Mark, because he was like a star basketball player and he went to Europe um, to play like professional basketball before he got into Buffy the Vampire Slayer and all didn't of these know the things. the basketball stuff, but yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah he's very today. much uh, on, on, uh, on set. He's like, you know, co Coach Mark, uh, yeah. you know, rallying everyone together. And uh, yeah, so that's very much in, in his DNA. But yeah, we... Um, Dorota and I had seen Allison in a show called Californication with uh, mm. David Duchovny. And we um, remembered show. her as kind of one of the, um, the, the more grounded, uh, serious performances in the show. And then we found out um, that she was originally from here and we were just like, Oh my God, like we had, you know, we had no idea. So it just started coming together and, um, Rachel uh, actually reached out to us when the project was rolling and we checked out um, some of her films like Homewreckers uh, and yeah, it was, it just kind of came together like that. So it was a bit of a reunion. We also brought some crew uh, that had been working out in New York and LA and had established careers. We brought them back home as well. So that became um, a bit of a rallying cry for the, for the project. Yeah. So that's always good on a movie is is if everyone's a team and it because it, it, it's hard work without people arguing and <laughs> and all the rest if the, if you're a team and you're there on the on the same side it uh, certainly goes a long way 
So, and um, Adrienne um, Barbeau as well, um, was she, did you, did you pick her because of her horror credentials or with the fog and creep show and swamp thing and all those, I mean, all manner of, is that how she, is that how she sort of, you went, we're making a genre, so let's get someone, the genre heads will know. It kind of kind of worked out like that. Um, to be honest, we you know we're we're fans of Adrian, and um, you know we were, uh, you know, you see talent in in certain kinds of films, and sometimes they don't get a chance to um, play you know uh, multifaceted roles. So it was really exciting to um, get her get her into into this film and Mark. Um, yeah, it really came about. Um, because of the casting directors that came on board, um, which Allison uh, kind of brought into the fold. And um, yeah, they uh, helped bring in Adrian, PJ, Monica, and Brooke, uh, which really made the difference because uh, that made, you know, the entire cast very solid. Um, So yeah, Adrian was, I mean, you know, it was a blessing and she was a real trooper. I'm sure Dorota can comment to, um, you know, Dorota, you want to share like an Adrian story? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, Adrian, um, Adrian had no problem to show up on the set uh, without any um, plans ahead at 4 a.m. and just perform in the forest, like it's a stage uh, and so that was amazing working with her. She was very energetic and very into that role and believing in that film. So yeah. that was really powerful. Yeah, she, I mean, she had a. She actually has on paper. You go. She's she's the uh, she's the matriarch, and she sits there being cutting, sort of like a working class Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey. But then she has a lot of without without spoiling it for people. She has a lot of uh, physical stuff to do later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is uh so she was a trooper in the uh yes. i mean yeah how 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 uh quick a shoot was it um was it was it was, was, a, sorry, it was yeah. 18 days it was 18 days wow that's so that's, it was quite intense yeah, yeah that's 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 not six weeks is it that's like <laughs> that's, yeah that's 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 really impressive then i mean it just looks amazing as well i was going to come on to your cinematographer as well um uh una lee um he's he's i mean his credits are like go on forever on imdb yeah. um <laughs> how, how did you get him on board because they're just the 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 uh Pennsylvania Tourist Board, um, in some ways, uh, will uh, will thank you because it makes Pennsylvania look amazing and beautiful for, for all the social deprivation. <laughs> uh, we always wanted a female DP mm-hmm. because I was co-directing and uh, I was I'm female, obviously, and then uh, we wanted someone more like female touch and we knew Una's work before. She was she has artist artistic background. She does painting. So I did painting as well. So I thought we, this way we can connect and have similar vision for the film. I wanted to be very kind of panty, uh, how was the word saying? Uh, you like very artistically taken, dirty image. So a lot of bouquet and uh, qualities, which I thought with her, we can find similar language 
Mm-hmm. So we just we weren't looking for clean, perfect image. We were looking for more kind of artistic, dirty, dirtier approach, like a lot of impasse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, it really gets the the earthiness and the the cut the palette of it's just really lovely and amazing, and uh, yeah. and that kind of makes the the horror. Maybe it's because I see so many horrors during festivals like this that are really bright blood and everything, but the horror in this really hits because it feels like it's happening in the real world (laughs) rather than it's socially real. We care about the characters. It's not some zombie movie. The palette's quite, um, quite earthy and rich and, and, and and not flashy. And then you've got, then you've got the body horror, which is kind of Cronenberg-y kind of uh, (laughs) that kind of thing. Which is it's just a really it's a really great mix of uh, really great mix of of things. Um, did you um, did you did you worry about the horror not coming in early enough? Did you worry that people would would go where's the horror, or were you like you're in now? You won't be just you, for me. I think it's it's like it's you're waiting for the horror. You know it's coming, and and then it doesn't disappoint anyway. Um, but did you worry about? the expectations of some horror heads or genre people who might go, of course, heads the, fallen uh, off yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, if you want to make a movie who, which please everybody, used to commercial pretty ple- pleaser, then I would not make movies because that's not the point. The point is to make something against the rules, something mm-hmm. maybe ugly, but find the beauty in it, kind of form of purpose and maybe imperfect because life is not perfect we don't have beautiful stylized images and flawless floating without any error story in our lives either so Mm -hmm. we have to embrace that and i met the term like social realism let's say that's something like Mm -hmm. that so the film is not perfect never meant to be perfect that was exactly opposite what you want to get with this film and kind of provoke the horror by not showing the horror for the whole film that was we were hoping that someone who has higher IQ than 80 and won't <laughs> eat popcorn and watch the film will get a little bit more than just some flashing yeah. images and actually listen what those main characters are talking between. Yeah, no, no, no. And I'm, I've got an IQ of 80, but uh, yeah, I, I, I really, <laughs> I really, it was a breath of fresh air as well because it wasn't like a horror immediately. And I really liked the characters and I didn't want them to die. <laughs> which is uh, which is a which is a also a great thing um but it's, it's it's weird in terms of the sort of talking about social realism very different film but that sort of that the sort of way it looks kind of if just the the exorcist just popped in my head because that's that's about demons and all sorts of stuff happens but when you see the movie it's real people walking around in quite a washed out palette and you've got a similar similar kind of thing going in there or or it made me think of maybe the quiet place a quiet place which is mm-hmm. which is which is kind of obviously obviously all these films are different but in that sort of way that they look real and they and you feel like you're in the real world even though there's aliens zooming around so sure. kind of thing and you feel like there. The families, right? You've you've met the families yeah. in, in each of those films that you've you've mentioned. 
um, yeah, or yeah. like something like the thing, you know, like you, you get to know these guys in that environment working together and their interactions between each other. Yeah. It was very, it, it, thank you so much for saying that because, um, it was always a, a, a part of our, our goal to base everything in, in character and story uh-huh. and theme. Um, even the, uh, the horrific deaths that we're, you know, we're alluding to, they all, uh, you know, come back to character and come back to um, kind of some of the symbolism of each of those characters and um, their personality types and things that they're going through psychologically or physically. Um, so, yeah, it, it, just to, you know, piggyback on on what Dorota was saying. Yeah, I mean, people are, are going to, you know, everybody comes into a film um, very differently. This is a slow burn. Uh, so, you know, pe- people, um, but you're not going to put on the poster, like it's a, it's a slow burn character, you know, it's like, but, um, yeah, some people just want like the, uh, roller coaster ride of, um, you know, seeing blood and guts and, and, you know, people they don't care about and, uh, maybe stories that aren't memorable and just jump onto the next one. And, you know, it's kind of, out of your mind in a half hour. Um, the films that we always gravitate gravitate towards, and I feel you're you're probably the same way. Just listening to you um, are the ones that kind of stick to your mind, and and you know they're kind of in your in your bones and in your psyche for a while yeah. afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The witch, the witch of recent movies as well. That's got a similar. Oh God, I love that film. Again, we do too. That's the. That's the <laughs> That's one of those films that people either go, oh, my God, I love it, too. Or they go, oh, my God, that was boring. Yeah, it was so <laughs> slow. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, are you mad? But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, like you say, you can't worry about um, making movies for everybody unless you're Michael Bay. <laughs> right. That's kind of Marvel's job, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so you can't make movies for everybody. But yeah. You, and... And Disney, know. Disney and them, they, they have to worry about, uh, you know, the four quadrants and, um, lowest common denominator kind of entertainment. Uh, that's in the independence, you know, that's where you don't have to follow the rules. Um, you can, yeah. uh, you know, you can set out and maybe piss some people off, but, you yeah. know, hopefully grab some people, um, you know, on the way that, uh, you know, or have a similar mindset and care about the planet and, and working class people and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, that's what brings us on to the politics of it. It's, uh, I thought another thing it did really successfully is not, not be preachy. I'm sure some asshole say it's wonderful or whatever, but I thought, I thought it was, uh, you know, it was, it had all those things in there without saying this is right and this is wrong. And you kind of, you had sympathy for the character that, you know, you had sympathy for the character. You could understand why he would get the, you know, sell his land to, to the what's it, patriotic. Uh, oh yeah. Patriot exploration. Patriot yeah. I mean, you exploration, have, yeah. especially now during a pandemic, I, I think more people can understand, you know, if you already had one arm tied behind your back going through life in, in normal times, right. Yeah. And now, um, you know, you're, you're out of work or you don't have health, health care. 
um, or you have, you know, a small child um, or, or mouths to feed, you know, it, yeah. a lot of families are one small disaster away from complete disaster, you know? And um, yeah. so we really wanted to show that, that, Hey, these, these families are struggling and these are the families that feed all of us, you know, they're, they're very important um, yeah. to every one of us. So whether, whether you're a farmer yourself, <laughs> hopefully you have empathy to understand that if we screw up water aquifers and our food supply, it's going to affect all of us eventually, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, it's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of anti-fracking in this country. Like it's a big, it's quite a popular campaign. It's not like a minority thing. Lots of the government looks like they're shying away from it because it's so unpopular, like majority unpopular there's been earthquakes and and a few yeah. things and is enough of the enough of the right newspapers have made it their thing so it looks like our government's really shying away from for all their faults they're shying away from fracking because it's a it's not a vote winner <laughs> yeah <laughs> i all. mean you guys have banned it in in england right england well, has banned fracking i think i, I, I think believe. it's i think it's as good as banned and some okay. there's been some controversy in some areas the local councils ban it, um, but then the the actual Westminster government unban it. It's a bit like a state uh -huh. bans something and then the president comes and says no. <laughs> so there's been a bit of wow. that going on, but it's also not done the government much thing, so they're kind of backed off. Even, even if without the fracking, it's just a sort of general, as an allegory for what are we doing to the planet. It's a very timely, uh, timely thing, and also something that sort of repeats through through genre history and through movie history as you know different different aspects of environmentalism kind of get their kind of get their, right. their movie yeah, the, and, the and siren the, call right <laughs> yeah and you're the first sort of fracking um first fracking movie <laughs> great <laughs> which is cool but it's uh, uh be, yeah, before we go i think i've got a i've uh what have i got um, so yeah, if you could just talk about the the effects, because like I said, I accidentally talked to Mark Kosabuki, mm -hmm. but he did your proof of concept stuff. But he said he he didn't work on this one. Um, so so who, who who was it that you got together and and were they was it was it mostly was it mostly non CGI? Was it mostly in camera? Yeah, um, it was. Yeah, and, and shout out to Mark. He he was he helped us in the early days get started, um, and then we found Steve Tolan of Tolan FX um, to do the practicals. And yes, it was always uh, we met with Steve probably a year, year and a half before production, um, because it was very important. Uh, you know, kind of. Harkening back to some of those titles that you mentioned, uh, practical for us is always, you know, you can have, not to pick on Marvel again, but, you know, you can throw $300 million up on the screen in CG, but in three or four years, um, to me at least, it, it feels dated. Um, whereas practical is captured in camera, you're lighting it with the lighting that's on set and it's kind of like a baked in look, right? Um, yeah. it's never going to change. So it was always important to us, uh, especially because we wanted to ground everything in character and, in, uh, 
reality as, as much as we could, of course, to a point. Um, it was important to have real physical appliances and effects that the cast could interact with. And in the drilling scene, the underground drilling scene, like that was all designed, real physical props um, that we used in the film. And yeah, we were very uh, happy, happy with the results. Um, but yeah, that was, that was always the goal to do as Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, that's one effects. Yeah, it kind of fits in with your movie being an environmentalist. You kind of got the using in camera effects is like the organic food equivalent of yeah. CGI. Horrible. <laughs> I mean, I agree. I agree. I I rewatch a lot of movies with my kids, and the ones that really stick with them, like we mentioned, the thing I showed that to my my twelve year old the other day because I'm a liberal. Oh, dad. Nice. And he was like, "Whereas you, he's just you sit and you can see." all those Marvel movies don't quite go into their brain. Like it's that, it's that sort of uncanny Valley thing. Mm -hmm. isn't it? That's not real. That's, in, that's come out of a computer. As soon as yeah, you like the laws of some blood, then, right. I, then, then the human brain knows, Oh my God, I'm really seeing that. <laughs> yeah. And the whole laws of physics thing, you know, when, when yeah. people seem like they're weightless and they're just all kind of bouncing and jumping uh, and flying it's around. Like watching, it's half time. It's like watching, them play Fortnite or something it's just right it's like but it's a 300 million dollar movie and it just yeah i hate it um with, yeah with faces more, more, yeah, movies, more faces movies like yours is. <laughs> is what i'd like but yeah but uh anyway that's just been amazing um and we've finally caught up we've worked out the time differences and uh yes, what, thank you what time is it where you are uh right now PM? it's 5 p.m 5 p.m Oh, wow, he really is, because I literally before you, it was 1 p.m., someone I was speaking to in L.A., so you really do have, like... Yeah, it's a lot of time zones. Yeah, yeah, confusing. <laughs> and then, who's in who's in mountain? I mean, I've always wondered, there's mountain time. Yeah. Somewhere. Like Colorado. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we always forget how big the States is. It's like a country, <laughs> but it's a continent. But anyway, um, it's been a pleasure to uh, finally meet you, and I'll uh, I'll send you a link to everything we put up um, on Vodzilla and on uh, on uh, the podcast, which people will be hearing this on. Um, oh, I'll send you all the thank links. You. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. It's been great to meet you, and that's how we meet each other in the real world at some future. Yes. Festivals. Cheers. We'll watch <laughs> yeah. it uh, and have a have a beverage afterwards. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. So there was Ian's interview for On Earth. Um, listeners, you have the advantage over me at the time of recording. You've heard the interview. I haven't. But thank you, Ian. Um, I've already decided I want to see this film based on the fact that Adrian Barbeau has a decent role in it. So therefore it's it sold to me and I'll be listening to yeah. the interview with interest when the podcast goes out. And you'll be, you'll be, you'll have watched it by the time we come to review it because we're not allowed to review it. Yes, <laughs> until, we're not allowed to review it. Until, until, until it's out. Yeah. Uh, um, first. So there's one more movie that we're going to cover with an interview in this episode and that is called The Oak Room which is a Canadian movie, which, again, I haven't seen and I wasn't involved in the interview. Uh, do you want to say anything about this movie, Ian, before we go on to the yeah, interview? Yeah, um, again, it's one I've just watched today, and uh, I can't help myself, but I really loved it. Um, 
So I'm full of enthusiasm. There's no real hiding it when I'm going into the interview. But I got to meet um, director Cody Callahan, who horror heads might know from Antisocial and Antisocial 2 um, in 2013 and 2015. Um, so he's kind of known for those sort of zombie movies. But um, this is a very different beast. It's not a horror film. It's got some really, really violent scenes in it, but that's not really what it's about either. It's based on a stage play, as I discovered in the in the uh, interview, um, by a writer called Peter Genoway. And it's got a, so it's got a real theatrical feel to it. Um, but it's uh, it's but they've obviously they've chopped it up and moved it around. Um, it's got a lot of dread in it. So it's uh, it's quite a quite a philosophical movie. But I, so I got, as well as Cody Callahan, I got to meet Ari Millen, who people may know um, from uh, Orphan Black, but he actually, uh, he actually got to know the theatre play. So this whole thing happened because of him. Just goes to show how slowly things move because he first put the idea in Cody Callahan's head in 2013 and they've just finished wow. the movie. So this is the movie business at the speed of a glacier <laughs> but um, yeah well um, they, were, they were lovely guys and uh, and uh, and and uh, yeah i had a lot of fun earlier today recently kathleen moran's movie how to build a girl was released and she said on twitter i am a little bit thrilled because it takes six years to make a movie and it's finally complete <laughs> so i guess that's that's like the minimal amount yeah yeah but yeah so uh, let's uh, go and listen to me now. Yes, that's good. to Abby Millen and Cody Callahan. All right, everybody, and I'll be back at the end. I'm cleaning up the place. Out of the blue, he comes in here acting like a big shot. You think you're pretty smart, don't you, college boy? You think you're going to actually talk your way out of this one? One way or another, you're going to pay up tonight. I've got something better than cash. I've got a story. I just walked two miles through a blizzard. I can tell you about the cold. Do you know bartenders love the dog? Wrong. Bartenders listen. That's the alcoholics that never shut up. Fact is, I've been feeling very strange lately. I'm sensing a story coming on here, Gordy. Shit, I haven't even talked to him for two years. You know, I used to see it. He used to always be hanging with the wrong guys. Uh oh, and now I'm really worried that he's got himself involved in some really ugly shit. Listen up. It's my turn to tell a story. Well, all this is going down. The killer is under the impression that the bar is empty. A storm like this? Everything just slows down. He could be wrong, you could be wrong. Nobody's got a perfect memory, right? We all go there. And when you got there, you remember this. You come and see me and you say hello. Hi, this is Ian Winterton and I'm in Cheshire, England. And I'm zooming all the way to Toronto, where in one room we have Cody Callahan director and Ari Millen star of the wonderful Oak Room which is appearing at Grimfest this year 
um, and I have just had the pleasure of watching it just a few hours ago. Uh, so well done, both of you. Um, um, it's kind of difficult to discuss your character too much, Harry, because um, uh, of the twist. <laughs> it's a brilliant script. Um, but um, how did the um, how did how did the project come about then? 2013, I auditioned for the Toronto Film Fest, uh, the Toronto uh, Fringe Festival uh, uh, production of a one-act play called The Oak Room. Uh, and uh, I played Michael, the same character in the film as in the play. Uh, and then fast forward four years, probably 2017-ish, Cody was asked, saying, hey, got any ideas? let's let's work on something and i said well there's this play that i did um you should read it and he sort of was like thanks all right thanks i want real ideas <laughs> and and so i finally convinced him to uh to read it and i think he said he was on a flight and so he was he read it on the flight and by the time he landed he was like yeah this is what i want to do so cody can take it from there i think oh amazing <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Up to that, it was it was funny. I I think I got off the plane and as I was like doing a baggage check, I was trying to call Ari. <laughs> so funny because he had it had been months of him trying to get me to read this thing, and it's like and I was like, yeah, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. But it was like a um, an instant sort of like, yeah, let's let's do this. And I think when I got back, the the three of us met with the writer, uh, or the two of us met with the writer Peter Genoway, and. Um, that just started the talk of, of how do we adapt this, the play into a movie, how, how much we add, how much we keep. And, uh, and yeah, through, through those discussions, we actually probably kept about 80 to 90% exactly the same as the play and just added a few things to sort of, to sort of make it feel like it, like it was a, you know, obviously like a film or whatever, and just, but just adding just enough pieces that pushed the story that was already there without kind of, you know, going off on tangents and stuff. Cause a movie like that, it's like, it's really hard to hold back what you want to show. It's like, do we want to show Stephen Paul's past? How much further back do we want to go? Or is this sort of a, a present day thing? And you know, if, if, if Peter's telling these stories, should we add another story, like another layer to him? So we went through a lot of iterations of ideas, but we, we stuck really, really close to um, what it is. That's, that's amazing because um, I, yeah, I didn't know it was a play at all. Um, but I'm a playwright myself, and I was watching it going, "This, there's something," and I didn't mean this as an insult at all because there's nothing worse than being told your film is reminds you of a play. But it made me feel like, um, you know, like it had some Sam Shepard kind of feel to it. You know, that kind of, you know, guys with guys circling each other, kind of um, with with some dark past going on. And I kind of thought, do you know what? This could be a play. Obviously, it's like you've done the job of it's a movie, and uh, it go it has lots of different places. But yeah, that totally makes sense that it was that it was. And I would say that's a giant compliment because Sam Shepard's a phenomenal playwright. Oh so yeah. Think, yeah. <laughs> Peter, Peter Genoway should be very proud that you compared him to to him. But uh, that was actually part of the discussion. Uh, very early on that Cody and, and Peter Genoway and Chad Archibald, the other producer, and I all had was um, how much did we want it to make it a play because it was so character centered, so um, dialogue rich. Um, did we want to 
keep it in, in, in the realm of that? Or did we want to sort of, I don't know, like I, I take, make it more, um, film, uh, more like a movie, more, more, more film cinematic. That's, that's yeah. the word I'm looking for. And, uh, we, we, we decided that it would be way more interesting and way more fun for Cody to direct, for the actors to act, to treat it more like, um, a stage play. And we would do sometimes 10 page takes where we would just let the camera roll and Cody would be furiously jotting down little notes here and there as, as, as you know, the scene was, was playing out. And then he would come back in and, and, and say on this, on this and this and sort of tweak. And then we would go back and do it all over again. And it was um, definitely one of the, the most inspiring and interesting um, sets I've ever been on just for the fact that we got to maintain the momentum the way you do in a play, as opposed mm. to just sort of like shooting an eighth of a page or, 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 you know, getting this shot from many angles and you never know realistically which one they're going to use. And then, so it's hard to like build from there. Yeah. It was, it was, um, it must've been working on a subconscious level. Cause when I was watching it, I was there going, you've got this long conversation, but then you kind of, it's it's cut from you know the different angles and there was something were you during that rehearsal process then cody were you kind of sort of storyboarding in your head going when they're doing this maybe i'll then use this camera from that angle you know the little exchanges and the expressions you know the silent responses sometimes so you'd be on the camera just at the right time um yeah during the conversation was that something you sort of worked out in this loose sort of rehearsal period yeah, so we'd done, uh, I met with Jeff Mahar, um, who's the DOP, um, and we did a lot of camera tests and, and talked about sort of lenses we wanted to use um, and stuff like that, but we never, we actually didn't make a shot list. So yeah. on the day we would walk in, the, the bars were, um, we, we built two sets um, so that we could, you know, control the, control the atmosphere, obviously. And so we would go in every day and we'd sort of map out the moments, the key moments that we thought we, where we needed to be, where we needed to be wide. And we sort of picked maybe our, our, our sort of four or five camera placements, but then usually on, uh, we would do these long takes. And during that take, it was just became obvious. Okay. Scratch that shot over there. We're never going to use it. Instead we'll move over here and we'll go, we'll go tight there. And we always had two cameras rolling, which was, which was nice. And we always tried to have two cameras on long lenses. So the actors weren't impeded mm -hmm. and it was only occasionally that we really got the camera close for, you know, certain bits, but everything else we tried to sort of, you know, fly on the wall. Yeah. 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 Maybe, yeah. Just, 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 just some bits where it's like three lines and don't ask me which lines. And it's just, it's just beautifully done because it's cut, cut. And then you focus pull to the reaction shot. Just, it just, it just, because it had been sort of closing in slowly, I think, and then it, it just the impact. The imp in general, it's a kind of slow burn of, it's kind of, it, it's, it's full of dread, that film. You know, the whole, the whole, we're all going to hell. And, uh, you know, <laughs> like, uh, and I kind of saw, and I guess, I guess like, like all good literature and all good plays, it's, it's not, it doesn't say this is what I mean. The playwright isn't there, but with the wristwatch being such a big motif, it seemed to be that time, yeah. time running out yeah. was kind of the devil. 
and I guess the, I guess in, in some ways there are parallels to Pulp Fiction, totally different movie, but the whole if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, we're all running down the clock kind of thing. Um, so there's that sort of, and that sort of plays to the whole, if he hadn't opened the door at that time, if he just locked up, none of this would have happened kind of thing. Yeah. So there's all these things going on, which I just think is fantastic. So Peter Genoway, because it's such an, it's an, such an accomplished script. And then IMDB is, what everyone clicks on, and it's like his first feature. But I take it he's a very established writer in Canada. Is he as a playwright? And um, he's written a few plays before and stuff like that. But to be honest, this is probably—I mean, as IMDb said, this is—I think this is his first movie. And then I think mm -hmm. he's done three or four plays. But I—I I really think it's—it—you know—it's had—it's had the time it needed to be sort of what it became, but also, I mean, the, the play itself, it's just, it just clicked. It's just mm -hmm. one of those things. Like, I, I mean, I'm not sure. I think he said he, he started writing it and Ari, you might know this more, but I think he said something like 2009 or something. He had the, that sounds familiar. That sounds he had familiar. experience like he was at a bar. Four year development to the play. Yeah. And then, and then another three or four to the screenplay. Yeah, so yeah. Had had he said it was like 10 far. years from, from Genesis to the film. Well, yeah. That's yeah. how it goes, though, isn't it? <laughs> from yeah. uh, in this business. But um, it, it's kind of strange as well because uh, in a play, one of the things you get is you all get to be a cast together. You're all in the building, even if you're not in a scene together. In this, you've got several mini plays. Um, you, you've got, it's, 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 it's almost a series of two handers. So, did, I take it you've met the other the, the, the other cast, Ari. But um, but on the actual shoot, was it was it very much these guys are coming in today, these guys are coming in the next day. So the schedule, did you sort of mix with people that you that you weren't in? My, I mean, my stuff was shot, I think, over th three days. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think the first day was with uh, Martin Roach. Uh, and then the second day, did we have Martin Horse the second day, or was it just? I think we shot. Care? I thought we shot it. Uh, in oh, order. we did shoot. We did shoot it. Yeah, so that so that when the body was behind, we that's moved, right. You, you mm -hmm. could step around it. And then so, 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 so we shot with we shot we shot with David David the first day, and then the second day we shot shot half a day with David, and I think Martin Roach was there, but I don't know if we necessarily got to him, and then we shot. Uh, all Martin stuff, mm -hmm. the, the the Martin uh, and and my stuff on the third day, and and that was that. And then I think I came in just to 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 meet RJ uh, during during the shoot, and uh, I mean I, I know Peter Outerbridge from from other stuff that I've done, mm -hmm. so uh, you know. I, I, I know what he's capable of and, and he blew me away in this, which was, which was just like, couldn't have asked for more from him. Yeah. You, you're and both then I unfortunately you. missed, uh, <laughs> missed uh, Nick Campbell stuff, which was uh, stuff of legends for, of, as far as what I heard. I heard all the, these phenomenal stories. And then when I finally <laughs> got to see it, uh, the, the, what they used, it was just incredible. But uh, apparently yeah. that day, speaking of just like, um, 
just allowing an actor, the actors, the scene, the, the, the scene partners to just sort of work off each other and, and Cody just sort of uh, just letting these, these, these great people do their stuff and then coming in and saying, I want this now and I want this now. But apparently it was just, uh, it was, Cody had a hell of a time uh, in the editing room because there were too many takes that were just so good. And so he had to, uh, so nice to, to have. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think the, yeah. the first cut of that of Nicholas Campbell's scene. I'm, I'm not sure the running time in the in the movie right now, but I I think the first cut was like a half an hour because there was one that he kind of went off on his own ten, tangent, and it's like I don't know. It was great because some of these vignettes could almost, with a tweak, sit on their own as a little short film. Oh wow, that's something for the DVD extras there. It was kind of that. That makes me think of. Uh... Robert Shaw in Jaws, and uh, <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah, I'm just going to write the best on the back. I'm just going to write the best dialogue in the movie, <laughs> and uh, and bring it in. Um, but yeah, so so how how was RJ? Obviously famous to uh, is it Mitte? You say his surname? Or Mitty. 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 Yeah, Mitty. Yeah, uh, was, Mitty. Uh... Obviously, to people at home, he is famous as Walt Junior. In Breaking Bad, so so, is he Canadian? Did you? Is he's everyone in this Canadian? No, not. <laughs> no. He's the only. He's the only non-Canadian. Oh wow, well. it's good to see Canadians acting as Canadians. Um, yes, I totally agree. Totally <laughs> agree. So so yeah. often it's oh you, the amount of, I don't know, I've had to review a lot of stuff lately, and I've either had Canadians or a lot of South Africans, and you don't realize. They're filming in Cape Town, but they're being American. <laughs> Just because yeah. that's where, you know, you can be American anywhere on earth and people will watch it. But well, I think if, also, you're, if you're, you know, getting the Americans to watch something that's not American. <laughs> if you ever think. It's also like, I remember when I first started making films, there was some, uh, a weird stigma about if you were making a Canadian film and said it was in Canada and used that you wouldn't be able to sell it because Americans didn't want to see a Canadian film, which I think is complete bullshit, but it was a stigma for a while. For a while. And, uh, yeah. and like now it's funny because we're developing all this stuff and we're working with writers and now I see, oh, it's set in Toronto rather than like, oh no, that's gotta be New York. We're just like, oh, fuck it, that'd be Canadian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and of course, Ivy, you're, you're, you've, um, you've, you've achieved a lot of fame from Orphan Black, which was, if I'm right, is set in Canada. It's well, filmed. Interesting, you say the first season they did a lot of work painting out the CN Tower and mm -hmm. or the skyline or shooting around our, our streetcar tracks or whatever. Um, and then as the the seasons progressed, they uh, I don't like and I don't know the politics behind it, but whether or not they were like, screw it, let's let's we're Toronto, let's be Toronto, or if or if it be, I don't know what, how the environment changed, but mm -hmm. it, by the end, it definitely is Toronto. Whereas season one, uh, they try very hard to angle the camera. So it is nondescript North America as opposed yeah. to Toronto. I wonder if it just took off over the world and everybody just kind of, over here it was big because it was BBC America Copro, wasn't it? But then the BBC yeah. showed it over here. Yeah. And it was just always... Everyone was just saying, oh, it's just Canadian sci-fi. So I guess yeah. maybe it was just out there and they realized they'd got a hit and 
no one minded. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so because that uh, it, it certainly helped put Canada and and, and it proved to everyone, like mm -hmm. you know, that it doesn't have to be uh, uh, anywhere USA or anywhere big city USA. That yeah, Canada is its own unique and interesting place. Yeah, that, I mean, uh, yeah, that can I tell stories that everyone the, can. Yeah. yeah. No, I think the guys in the suits sort of second guess what the audience will go for. Actually, definitely, definitely. The, the audience is much more open-minded than the than the guys. <laughs> it comes down, yeah, it comes down to the story and 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 what people are watching, why they tune in, not and not where they're set. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, it's uh, it's uh, the, your poster, I believe, is 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 all about the hacksaw, um, which you got to wield, obviously, Ari. Um, <laughs> that's that seems just amazing. I mean, the whole. The whole the whole thing's so gripping and dark, and it's just it does feel like like the storm's closing in, and it really yeah. feels like that world's getting smaller. And then when we get to that scene, which is just kind of horrific, mm -hmm. um, well, it is horrific. Um, I mean, how 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 long did that take to sort of block around doing that grisly um, scene? I think the funny actually, I, I think you and me, Ari, we were. I, Maybe it was, we had done wardrobe together. I feel like I was over at your house and I think we started talking about um, maybe how how we would shoot it and what we would see. And I had a bunch of conversations with Jeff and it was, you know, I, at, at first I was like, the movie's going to be sort of this slow burn. So I really want to go, like, I really want to make that that sort of, that scene pop. And I had all these ideas of what we would show and we just started scaling back, scaling back, scaling back. and. In the end, it, it's sort of for a film like this. It's kind of obvious. The 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 more you hear and the less you show, the far more impactful and graphic it is. And it's funny. It's a lot of people have said it's one of the most graphic scenes in some of our movies. And the, you don't see it. No, no, is, no, it's funny. It's just it's all the it's all the feeling. Yeah. The, well, the really striking image is you, Ari, and it's just you doing that <laughs> from from your back, and you you hold you hold it for a long time. And the, the the if I remember correctly the the sound sounds pretty amazing, and you've got the uh, and you've got obviously the detuned radio station, sort of you know who, who was that in the script or how, when when did the detuned because that's a genius genius uh, the, the snow outside and the snow inside it's just uh, yeah. it's a yeah. good old, yeah. when did that well, come? I, knew, I knew we wanted to bring the song that there's like the song at a at the beginning and I wanted to bring it back so that it kept kept referencing the, the the spinning beer bottle shot. So the audience was continuous. You know, every time somebody put down a bottle, it's like, here we go, here we go. Um, I can't remember if that was in, I, it was definitely not in the script for a long time, but it, it might've made its way into the script right before we shot, but it kind of feels like that was just within the last few weeks of, of talking about the movie. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah. I can't, I I can't remember now. The movie gods were were working their magic it was yes yeah, it's, it's just a perfect distillation of everything just sort of collided uh, irising down <laughs> to uh to that moment it's uh so uh you've uh you've got um your art department had obviously did, did not as well as uh as well as the gore um they obviously don't know how much this is a is a spoiler really but i get it's in the watching anyway this movie because the the speech leading up to the dead piglet 
like, Ari, that must have been amazing to say because that's just a really well-written speech. And yes, Lee, no, I, didn't, was, was... I didn't see that it was going to go where it went, shall we say, without spoiling things. But yeah, that, that, like, where do you get, where did you get a stillborn piglet from? Do you make them or was it a baby piglet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had to, yeah, we got that made. I was yeah, just yeah. a just a hunk of plastic that Sean Hunter, who who done I think most of the movies I've I've directed um, from Hunter Hunter Effects is 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 just amazing, and yeah, and it's it's funny because like in person when he brought it to set and he opened it up, it's like everybody was, oh god, is that like real? So it's like as soon as you have that, you're like, okay, great, and it's like again, it's it's one of those gags that's like. If that pig didn't look real enough, it would have just cut Ari's performance in the story in half, right? Yeah. He needed yeah. To, all that stuff needed to feel, you know, as real as possible. Right. And, and again, like, there's so many moments in the movie and that, that, that piglet in the snow breathing is just, uh, it's just, you know, just fantastic. It really is. There's so many, there's so many, it's, it's definitely a movie I'm going to tell people, watch it and then watch it again, because I want to go, I want to see it. Just because it's, it's sort of, it's uh, it is a little, it's a little, uh, it's a little, uh, the layers of the onion sort of unpeeling and interlocking. You kind of think, oh, they're just telling stories within stories, but then they all lock together. So yeah. it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel sort of pretentious or unearned. It's everything's there for a reason, um, which is, uh, you know, yeah, I'm a real fan of this movie. So definitely going to tell people to go and see it. Just, just before we uh, wrap up, you're both according to the internet obviously COVID-19 might have changed things but you're both you're both involved in vicious fun is that shot or is that in pre-production where what's COVID-19 done um, <laughs> vicious fun. yeah it's uh so yeah so both movies got stuck in the weird black hole of COVID-19 where festivals are that once we're taking 200 films or taking 25 and so it's it's been tough to figure it out but uh vicious fun is going to have its world premiere uh opening night at sitches mm -hmm. film festival in spain so and then after that hopefully um you know we've got a a little festival run that will probably take us into 2021 um and then hopefully streaming service so other people can see it but yeah we, we don't really know the festival uh run yet because we just finished it because we actually i think the day that i finished the sound mix on the oak room it was like four days later i was on set directing vicious fun oh wow yeah it was a bit of a hell of a year and it, yeah hell of a year. <laughs> and then in between those two movies my son was born so right. it was like it's it was absolute chaos but i think out of the chaos we got two pretty amazing movies when my son was born i found i actually was really productive weirdly like you just get used to not sleeping and you just say yes to <laughs> and, and suddenly you're doing it all yeah, totally. I, think it, I think it improves you as a improves your productivity well, that's uh, what I think it takes 10 years off you but it improves your productivity <laughs> but yeah anyway guys i hope i hope as i'm saying to everybody um I hope we get to meet in the real world at some future festival, and I'd love to see the Oak Room in a in a theatre, if it oh, awesome. if, uh, if if they ever open them properly yeah. <laughs> again. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but it's been a pleasure, and uh, and again, congratulations on the appreciate it. Thank you. Movie I'm going to recommend to everybody. 
Okay, so that was Ian's interview with the makers of The Oak Room. And that concludes our first Grimfest 2020 preview episode. So if you want to book tickets to Grimfest, um, as I said earlier, go to the links in the description. Next week, I will actually stick to my promise from last week to bring you a review of Halloween 6 with Howard and uh, Spider-Dan and Luke Richards. Um, and then we're going to do a couple of other things, but we've got more Grimfest preview episodes coming up before the actual festival happens at the start of October. Ian, thank you so much for coming along today and yeah, for sure. involving me in all these interviews, which has been great fun. Um, and all it remains for us to do is just recommend some things that the listeners can catch up with uh, in the horror realm over the next week or so. So what have you been watching? I've been watching things I'm not allowed to review for Grimfest. Um, oh, that's true. Any, anything you can talk about? Then? Well, and the only other thing I've actually... Uh, I've been desperate to watch things, and the only thing I've watched um, has been Dez on ITV with the mighty David Tennant as uh, as serial killer Dennis Nielsen. Oh, yes. Which is a recommendation, but also I imagine everyone has already heard how good it is. Cause it's, uh, but just in case you haven't, or you're listening abroad, um, I definitely recommend watching the miniseries Dez, starring David Tennant as Dennis Nielsen. Because I don't know anything about it other than that it is David Tennant and he's very good casting for Nielsen. I yeah. don't know who wrote it or anything. Do you know? I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, but it was um, the director had a lot to do with bringing it. It's a, it's a real, really well-researched piece. But it's also based on the book by Brian Masters, who actually appears in uh, as a character. He's like one of the main characters in oh. in the in the drama. Played by the wonderful Eddie Point, because <laughs> uh, you don't know what's uh, you're going to have to uh, suddenly know. Uh, good, what's his name? Des and you You'll know his name, and I can't believe I can't remember. He's in. He's a British Mancunian. Jason Watkins. I, I knew it was Jason Watkins. Yeah, well, I yeah. will now say that. So. So yeah, it stars it stars obviously David Tennant as uh, Des. He's just uh, he's just pretty wonderful. It's an amazing script as well, really chilling. Um, but yeah, based on the book by Brian Masters, which um, I really want to read now because it's not just a sort of cheap um, true crime thing. Um, it's apparently a really sort of award-winning, really, really almost you know highbrow high book about a really grim subject uh, and Brian Masters played by the wonderful Jason Watkins um, is in he's in it as a character so his sort of journey of being sort of on the outside just thinking oh what makes this man tick and then it's sort of his his journey and also the uh, the um, I've done it again Words, Ian. Words. No, I'm, just trying, I'm trying to remember the name of... Uh, um, and also Daniel Mays, who plays the detective. So it's a sort of three... The, the three characters, David Tennant, Jason Watkins, and Daniel Mays, as the detective, and the, the, two, the writer and the detective, sort of how their lives are changed by David Tennant's death. 
Um, oh, great actors. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so it's an amazing, it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing sort of three episodes of uh, ITV just do the best true crime at the moment. Jason Watkins has this kind of amazing twin track career where on the one hand he's got comedy like trolleyed and he was in the remake of Are You Being Served and things uh, like that. But on the other hand, he does incredibly real based on true stories because he was, um, there's another true life drama about the man who was uh, um, in, inaccurately accused of murder. In Bristol, yeah. And yeah. Uh, he, that's, that's a, I, I can't remember the name of that show or, or even the case or anything, but he was brilliant in that. It was recently repeated. Yeah, no, no, the one, the, and it's got Steve Coogan at the end as himself. Um, yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, he's uh, and he's in line of GT. Is in so many, so many things. He's a but wonderfully he, believable villain in the first series of Being Human. The Lost Honor of Christopher Jeffries. Yes, that's the show. Thank you for coming to my rescue, Google. Harold Wilson in The Crown. He's he's oh. he's he just he just um, and he's in nativity. So he he just yeah. um, he just he is one of those people that you just forget how many things he's done because he just uh, he just sort of becomes the role. Yeah. Rather than oh, it's David Tennant playing Dennis Nielsen. It's it's hardly ever oh, it's Jason Watkins. You, you always take on that's the character when it's Jason. Yeah. That's why he caught my eye straight away because the character he played in Being Human, which was back in two thousand eight, nine. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a vampire, but he's a professional police officer. <clears throat> and I was working for the police at the time and I just um, thought, This guy is believable. He's like the kind of guys I see in the canteen at work. Hmm. Um and, and he really sold that and yeah. I've seen him in, he's been great. Yeah, yeah. Um so that's my fairly well. It's not rubbish, but also probably I've probably not opened many people's eyes because everyone knows about this in the UK certainly. Well, um, well, I probably wasn't going to watch it, and I may do in hand. So oh no, you really said it's. it's um, I think it's going to win a BAFTA. Right. Um, it's it's really good. Um, it's it's interesting because you kind of think. Um, when when it first it literally opens with him getting arrested, like he's he's arrested, and you know he did it. No, you know, because in real life, Dennis Nielsen wrote letters complaining about the drains uh, in his building so that he'd get caught. So they find the body parts in the drains. So that's right. how it starts with him. They find body parts, they arrest him. Right. You know, how many people do you think you've killed? Mm, 15, 16. And it goes on from there. It's chilling. Oh, wow. Never a whodunit. It's uh, is he mad or not? Mm, right. And also yeah. the psychological impact of the people dealing with it, and yeah. and how crap the police are at caring about the victims. <laughs> they just want okay. to and they don't want to spend as, that much money. So there's there's lots there's lots in it. It's really really interesting. Uh, really interesting. Right. Oh, fascinating. That's a solid recommendation. Oh, definitely. Okay. definitely. So what have you, what have you, what are you recommending? Well, my recommendation is a lot more flimsy. I've got Disney Plus at the moment oh. and it suddenly struck me to uh, kind of uh, investigate beyond the obvious Disney things, which is basically, you know, the Disney movies, Star Wars, Marvel. That's mm. what Disney Plus is. 
But mm. I suddenly realised that, you know, Disney used to make other kinds of films and I found The Black Hole on there. Oh, which wow. Characterised as great, my first horror movie. It's a kid's film, but it's... Well, basically, it's, it, it's a 1979 film and it's Disney trying to react. It's funny that they own Star Wars now because this is what Disney made in reaction to Star Wars but in the 70s. Basically, another sci-fi tempest after Forbidden Planet, is that...? Um, it, it's got elements of that, but it's also yeah. kind of a space remake of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I think, which I've uh, also yeah. recently watched because that's also on Disney+, Plus, the, the Disney version of that. Um, I, and know, I, I love I, that. This thing is interesting well. because, you know, having set themselves as the challenge of, right, let's make... Star Wars is big, we have to make a sci-fi space adventure. They did that, but they edged more to horror. And, mm. um, you know, it's all about a, a, a mission into a black hole. But the black hole is immediately characterised, like within the first five minutes of the film, as it's basically like hell, isn't it? It's like going into hell. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, it's, it's actually... They tried to make Star Wars, but what they ended up with was making Event Horizon for kids. I was about to um, say, it sounds like Event Horizon is... Uh obviously a later movie but yeah no you've well that's a really good recommendation because i've got disney plus and i've literally only turned it on to either watch the mandalorian or i've turned it on for my children so uh right. so that's fantastic so um i'm actually going to go and find that and watch it maybe watch it with my child and see what he loves star wars see how that oh brilliant because I, I used to love it when i was a kid it's not that. a movie I'd recommend to adults now, but to oh, really? kids who've never seen... Well, probably not. It's definitely a kid's movie. It's cutesy. It's mm. got, like, robots in it who are, like, R2-D2 taken to the power of ten, you know, in, in, in how cute they look. Yeah, and how annoying them. they are. But, yeah. on the other hand, as a kid's horror movie, I mean, the things that I remember most from it uh like the deaths and things like no spoilers but mm. for instance there's a bit where a character is killed by a robot with whirling blades oh yeah and obviously the makers of it are aware it's a children's film they can't do anything too violent so what they do is they have the guy who's about to be killed hold up a book which the blades go through and then it cuts away so you see the the blades tear a book to pieces and then you are left to imagine what those blades would do to the man. Oh, and wow. it's indelibly horrible. Um, and when I was a teenager, one Saturday night on ITV, they showed The Black Hole at about nine o'clock. And then on another channel, a couple of hours later, they showed Alien. So I had like a four hour stretch of 1979 sci-fi darkness. Oh, wow. But it was actually a great evening. Well, yeah. And I've, yeah, I've not watched The Black Hole since I saw it in the cinema in 1979. So, yeah. uh, I'll definitely... It does have a I've great, got, I've got great John Barry musical score as well. Yeah, I've got great memories of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, I just, that holds I watched up. That, oh, that seemed to be on TV all the time when I was a kid. This giant squid fight at the end. I just, I just feel like I've seen that loads of times. I want to show... My, I watched it a lot when there. I was about 12 and I've just re-watched it 
on Disney Plus for the first time in 20 years, literally today. And it does good? hold up. It's great. The giant yeah. squid looks brilliant. Yeah. Um, the the design, the lighting. This is a a sci-fi adventure movie from 1954, and and it just stands up. God, is that one it's made? It's um. Yeah. I I think it's probably one that's due for a remake because, like, I think it was Alan Moore that was the only in his um League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. His Nemo is like the Nemo in the novel, which is he's a Sikh. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think having having a Sikh Nemo. Um, well, that's that's the only good thing about the movie of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is that the Sikh Nemo and his ship are amazing. Yeah. It's like just those sequences are just stunning, and you think I want to see a series of movies about this guy alone. Yeah. No, I remember when that came out, and I, I stopped watching the film because I just didn't like it. But I remember thinking, surely remaking 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, somebody's going to do that at some point. Because it's well, one, it, of, one of those books that just... Bizarrely, it was remade twice in 1997 alone as two big-budget uh, miniseries. Oh, wow. One of them starred Michael Caine as Nemo, and the other one, I think, was Ben Cross. And I've seen Sorry. bits of both of them, and they're kind of interchangeably dull... And, you know, because it's like 90s CGI-led TV, they look yeah. horribly dated now. I um, certainly didn't hear about them. <laughs> right. they, they were briefly big. I remember reading about them in the run-up to them and stuff. Yeah. And, and you, know, you can see bits of them on YouTube. But I, I, I almost feel like they might have tarnished the idea of... Of remaking the movie, but the, the original movie stands up so well, even though it does look, uh, you know, it's it's very very fifties in its lack of diversity. So there are basically yeah, there are no yeah. women in it. All the the main characters are white, including the one who's meant to be a Sikh. Although the movie doesn't, it kind of makes it makes the point that he's alien if you like from the other characters because he's english it's interesting that the right. four main guys in it are a german a frenchman an american and an english guy right um, and, but it's really weird that he's you know james mason's nemo is um has this kind of english gravitas but he talks about the fact that he comes from this i think made-up country that they don't really name <laughs> um so they, they vagified it <clears throat> um, but that's yeah. the only aspect of it that dates it really is is the old whiteness and the maleness of yeah. it. Yeah. Wow, James Mason. Yeah, I'm gonna uh that's my next movie to watch with uh with my son lined up. D double nice bill, one. Double bill of Oh uh, great, so we've helped each other there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're going fire, I'll fire up Disney, you fire up ITV Hope. And, uh, and we'll be happy. So cool. I will uh, see you very soon, Dan and listeners. Yes, we'll be, we'll be back here very soon. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been a pleasure and continues to be a pleasure. Um, listeners, I'll be back next week with Halloween Six Review and with the other guys. And um, Ian will be back here before too long. In a All right, bye-bye, everyone. And bye-bye, Ian. Bye. You have been listening to 
And now the podcast starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by T.D. Velasquez and Ian Winterton. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at And Now Podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash And Now Podcast. And now the podcast stops.